You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Episode number 187 of the Show Before the Show podcast, our final pre-winter meetings edition in 2018 is here. Hello, everyone. I am Tyler Mond. Sam Dykstra is in New York City. Hello, Sam. Hello, Tyler. How are you? Good, good. How are you? How are things? I am fine. Things are good. And thus concludes this week's episode <laughs> of the show. No. Um, hey, let's uh, let's get started. Let's dive right in. we got a lot to talk about this week uh, because Jerry DePoto never sleeps. And that'll kick us off in three strikes here in just a moment. But thanks for tuning in wherever you found the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. You can check us out on the site, MILB.com, where you can find all of our past episodes. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasting episode feeds and things anyway um so yeah let's get uh, let's get rolling three strikes it's going to be mariner centric this week maybe not surprisingly because it's the off season and that means if you're a mariners prospect there's like a one in one and a half chance that you're going to get traded <laughs> and the mariners made a deal actually not really dealing prospects mariners swapping uh major league talent to the new york mets in exchange for prospects as seattle continues to haul in minor league talent uh robinson cano is probably the most notable name headed at least as far as the major league talent goes i don't know if i want to say most notable name um but I think when this deal first came out, you sort of expected like, or at least the the concept of this deal first came out, you kind of thought, okay, maybe a salary dump kind of makes some sense trying to get rid of Robinson Cano. Edwin Diaz, I don't think many people expected to not be in a Seattle Mariners uniform going into 2019, but that's the world we find ourselves in now. Um, in exchange, Mariners bring back a lot of talent, including now their second and third ranked prospects in outfielder Jared Kelenic and right-handed pitcher Justin Dunn, who coincidentally enough is this week's guest on the show before the show. We'll talk with Justin coming up here in a little bit. Um, but Sam, your initial reaction to this deal, I know it came out on MLB Network um, before this deal really got legs. And obviously now in retrospect, you think, well, somebody probably tipped him to the fact that this was at least in its early discussions. But Dan O'Dowd, uh, the former Rockies general manager, brought up a trade concept that was just roundly mocked on Twitter that basically was this exact trade. Uh, and then a couple days later, it came out that this trade was, in fact, in the works. Um this is one of those trades that right now it seems like both sides have a lot of fiery opinions about and I think could, you know, a year, two, three years from now have panned out for both sides too. Yeah, it's it's one of those interesting trades that I feel like both sides are angry about in terms of fan yeah. si fandoms, um, which usually means it's a decent trade. Um, there's so many moving parts in this deal. You mentioned Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz. So that's what's going to New York, along with $20 million, and we can't overlook that. That's helping to go towards Robinson Cano's contract, basically, uh, because he is owed $120 million over the next five years. Um, but what, what that also does is kind of essentially buys prospects. Uh, you know, I'm a big soccer fan. Uh, Tyler, you are a budding soccer fan, as it were. My uh, Wolves. My Yeah. Tyler is a noted fan of the Wolverhampton Wanderers. Noted or fan. Noted fan. Um, but over there, it, it's usually buying players. You know, there's transfer fees. Here, we don't usually have that. It's usually 
unless it's for cash considerations, which isn't much, but uh, it's usually player for player transactions. Uh, but essentially here, Seattle was willing to throw in $20 million essentially to get a better brand of prospect coming back. So who do they get? They get Jared Kalenic, uh, who was the Mets first round pick this year, 2018. They took him with the sixth overall pick. He's going to Seattle. Uh, Justin Dunn, who was our guest this week, you can listen to his interview with us in a couple minutes about what his reaction to this whole trade was, uh, along with major leaguers Jay Bruce, Anthony Warzak, and Gerson Bautista. Um, so a lot of this is making money work out and all that kind of stuff. Um, but Edwin Diaz on his own would have gotten a great package, not just uh, Kalenic and Dunn essentially. I think they could have gotten even a little bit more. You add Cano to that. There's a lot of dead weight in his contract. Okay, that lessens it a little bit. But if you still want a Kalenic and a Dunn, you have to give a little bit of money. So a lot of a lot of moving parts in this deal. That's why it took a while for this to go down. Uh, I think we started hearing rumors about it. Dan O'Dowd's thing aside, and there were still some wrong things about that. I'm not going to give him full credit for it. Uh, I think he had like Malik Smith going away from Seattle again uh, after Seattle traded him years ago and then traded and somebody for endeavor, him by the way um we don't ever give him full credit for anything so please <laughs> yeah. well there you go <laughs> um but like the, there were rumblings about this like thursday so we didn't even really get a chance to talk much about it on the podcast uh going into friday into saturday i think we finally put it up on the site on saturday when everybody kind of confirmed that was happening but it didn't really go official until earlier this week um so it was really weird now you know, the Mariners have officially kind of – you mentioned Edwin Diaz didn't seem like somebody they needed to trade. He's got, I think, yeah. four years of control left. Um, not necessarily anybody they need to move immediately unless they got really excited for that. So the fact that they are willing to move in Edwin Diaz is a clear sign that Seattle is going into you know full rebuild mode. They looked at their, their farm system. We've talked about this before. Not really much going on there whether it's in terms of depth, whether in terms of it being top talent. I mean, before this deal, their top prospect was Kyle Lewis, who was a first round pick in 2016, but has had so many injury issues, uh, really struggled staying on the field and then has struggled this past year at double A Arkansas when he was on the field. There wasn't anybody to get super, super excited about in this system. Uh, you add Justice Sheffield in the in the Yankees trade. You add Kalenic and Dunn. Okay, now we're starting to get there a little bit. Are they fully there yet? Is this a system that the Mariners can say, okay, look, we have the pieces we need for a rebuild? Absolutely not. Um, you know, if Jerry DePoto wants to make more trades, they certainly have the assets to do that. Uh, Mitch Haniger would bring back a, a handsome prize, probably something bigger even than Diaz because he's an everyday player, uh, also with years of control. So we'll have to keep an eye on that, whether they're going to move Haniger. Uh, D. Gordon is also there. Maybe they try to move him. Um, not going to get necessarily a big package for him, but at least you can rebuild a little bit more. Uh, we'll have to keep an eye on what the Mariners are going to do here from here on out because it, you know, this is a good start, and adding Kalenic is great, and I know a lot of Mets fans were upset about that. Uh, there was a great hypothetical that got thrown around in the office here in New York. Uh, who hits more home runs, Robinson Cano as a Met or Jared Kalenic as a major leaguer? I think there's a big rush to get super excited about Jared Kalenic, and trust me, he is a 5 a player. I, I like him a lot. Uh, what he showed in the pros last year after already playing you know a spring season in, in wisconsin and for being a cold weather player the way he took off uh especially in the, the gulf coast league and then rebounded really well the rookie level kingston um you know before the trade 
he has five tool potential. That's great. He's still a teenager who has yet to play above rookie ball. The amount of times we've gone through this and said, this guy has a chance to be a five tool monster. Even in this system, I just mentioned Kyle Lewis. He was that, plus he was a college player already with a college resume. Kalenic doesn't even have that yet. As great as I think he can be, there's still way too big of a gulf right now between his ceiling and his floor uh, to say like, okay, this is somebody that an entire system can be based around. Maybe we say that next year after he puts in a full season not quite there yet uh justin dunn has the the potential kind of a justice sheffield light and from the right side instead of the left side um you know somebody with a a history of relieving in both in college and in the pros uh has the stuff to be a starter his fastball is plus his slider has the chance to be above average two plus has had some control issues but really took things off rebounded well and took things to the next level in 2018, striking out 156 batters and 135 in the third innings, shutting down both worries about his stuff not playing or his control holding him back while also showing good uh, durability this year with those 135 in the third innings. Um, so there, there are some pieces here to start for Seattle, um, but in terms of them being super excited about what this means for them, going forward in, in a rebuild. I'm not quite there yet. Meanwhile, the Mets system, you didn't give up Andres Jimenez. You did not give up Peter Alonso. You didn't give up some of the young assets at the major league level in a Michael Conforto, a Brandon Nimmo, a, a Ahmed Rosario. Um, so, you know, th- this was a win now move for the Mets. Uh, I don't think they're going to trade Noah Syndergaard. I will take Brody Van Wagenen at his word uh, that you know, this, they are winning now. They're not going to go ahead and flip Noah Syndergaard to the Padres, maybe as rumored, and try to build up the system again. You know, take two steps forward, two steps back, maybe. Uh, I'm really excited to see what else the Mets can do and try to close that gap with the Nationals, with the Braves, and obviously with the Phillies coming off a, a, a somewhat decent year, and they, they still have some good young pieces there. Um, but, yeah, as of right now, the Mariners have taken some steps to rebuild, not fully quite there yet. And that uh, sends us perfectly into strike two. This Mariner system um, looks very different right now from where it was two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, as of right now, the top three prospects in that system are brand new. Uh, Justice Sheffield, Jared Kelenic, and Justin Dunn. Where does this system stand now? Kyle Lewis and Evan White, two guys who were the top prospects in that organization for the last couple of years, they've now been pushed back to numbers four and five. So obviously you've added some top flight talent. Um, where does that system stand as you view it right now, Sam? Yeah, one reason I want to talk about this is Jerry DePoto seemed to try to be pumping the tires of their system, and that's great. That's his job. That's what he's supposed to do. But here's a quote from him from Monday. Uh, We feel like we just went from somewhere in the bottom five in terms of farm systems to somewhere in the top ten. And that is a pretty swift move to do in about a month. We are very much looking forward to next year's draft and the international market and the ability to continue to look at the idea of turning veteran players into young players. This is the road we've opted for and we're excited to watch the guys play, but we think our system has come a long, long way. Definitely with him on that last point, like like I said, this is an improved system for sure. They have three top and under prospects right now. Uh, Reasons to get excited for sure. What I have a problem with is him saying, we feel like we just went from somewhere in the bottom five to somewhere in the top 10. Uh, you know, farmers, farm system rankings are great. The prospect rankings are great. You know, they're great things to talk about, whether on this podcast or uh, content purposes. When we, we'll put up our own farm system rankings, we're already starting to plan those out for 2019. Is this a top 10 system? No. 
like DePoto can say whatever he wants in terms of what he feels like, whether this is a top 10 system. Three top 100 prospects does not alone make a uh, top 100 system and or a top 10 system. And the reason why this system, we were so down on it to begin with, was not just because it didn't have a top flight prospect. It was because there was very little depth here. Uh, even going on beyond the top five, I mean, th there wasn't really much to get excited about. And that's still the case. I mean, you look at prospects maybe 10 through 30 yeah you add in eric swanson and you add don thompson williams and they added some pieces there they just signed ricardo sanchez from the braves after he was dfa'd um so they've done some tweaking there but it, it it's still not a particularly deep system and that holds them back from being the top 10 uh in terms of right now in in terms of farm systems that i feel like their GM should actively be boasting about where they are. It's basically the Padres, the Braves, the Rays, the White Sox, maybe the Reds, the Astros, the Angels, and the Dodgers. And then I know the Blue Jays, uh, their GM a couple months ago, tried to say like, hey, we're a top five system in the game right now, uh, which again, it's in their best interest to talk up the system. Um, but a lot of that has to do with selling it to you guys, the fans and saying like, oh, listen, we're selling off major league assets because we think the farm system is so good. Whether that's objectively true or not, they can, this is spin at this point. Um, they want you to get excited about being a top 10 system in a way that a college football fan might get excited about having a, college, a top 10 ranking. Um, it doesn't really matter for anything. All it's going to matter is in five years if they turn that talent into an actual team that is winning divisions and making playoffs. Because for Seattle, they haven't made the playoffs in going on 20 years now. Um, that's where the results need to be, not in these farm system rankings that they're going to try to spin to you guys. Uh, you know, are have they made steps towards that? Yes. Is a top 10 system immediately going to buy you a playoff spot? Absolutely not. Um, so, you know, we'll be keeping an eye on this. We'll, we'll rank them, you know, when, uh, when the dust settles and see what other deals they can make. Are they a top 10 system right now? No. If Jerry DePoto wants that, he needs to start making other trades. But just remember that that's all spin to say when he trades Mitch Haniger potentially uh, and makes the major league team actively worse, he's trying to sell it to you guys as being okay because the system is now top 10. Um, so he's going to have a ways to go before that. And, I, you know, if they get a good package back for, for somebody like Haniger, I will praise him for doing that. Uh, but he doesn't get the prize of just saying they have a top 10 system because they made a couple blockbuster trades uh, to get them out of the bottom five. Nice parade there, Mariners fans. It'd be a shame if Sam rained on it. I'm not. I'm not trying to rain on their parade. Like you should be acting. You know, like listen, the Mariners are in a tough division. Trying to catch the Astros is difficult, and they've done enough tinkering uh, to only get to them to 89 wins. And you know, you need to try a new tact, and that's great because Depoto has basically raided the cabinet for years of, of just saying like we don't care about prospects we're just going to bring in major league players yeah, it's kind that, of a weird about face in that in that respect right so th that's fine but like just know where he's coming from when he says like we feel like we went from bottom five to top ten um he's just trying to say that to to make it look like all these moves he's now making uh, you know uh, look even better than they do um we'll, we'll talk about systems going into the spring but in terms of boasting that hey we did it we're good it's like no you're not yet you still have, you still have a ways to go 
you can catch all the details on that trade at MILB.com, and it leads us to strike three. There are probably a whole lot more trades on the way. The winter meetings get started uh, next week in Las Vegas. And, uh, Sam, what do you have your eye on? Uh, maybe some potential deals that could uh, alter the baseball landscape at the winter meetings. Yeah, one kind of trend I'm watching right now is there seem to be a couple trades that are happening that aren't – you know, normally we think of trades of being – you trade major league talent for minor league talent and you spread it out and you, you know, you trade three players for one, something like that. We're not seeing, you know, the Sheffield deal, the deal aside, Kalenic and Dunn aside, there's been a decent amount of trades that are happening involving just straight major league talent. Uh, and even some of the rumors like JT rail Muto right now, it might be the biggest trade piece on the market. Uh, at least actively looking to be traded. You know, he's saying he wants to, find a new club before next year he's refusing to sign an extension with miami and you know for good reason they're they're obviously trying to rebuild uh they realize the asset they have in him and they're asking for the moon but some of the rumors we're hearing come out like maybe the mets are talking to miami and what they're asking for back is michael conforto and ahmed rosario it's not peter alonzo and andres jimenez plus a couple other pieces so you know it is could next week be trade heavy, but not be prospect trade heavy? Maybe uh, that that could be something that we'll look at. Uh, J.P. Crawford, you know, going from the Phillies to the Mariners. If that happened two years ago, we would have sounded all the alarms. That would have been a huge prospect move. J.P. Crawford at one point being a top five overall prospect. Now we've seen him in the majors, at least for our purposes here at MILB.com. Doesn't matter to us. That, that's not a deal that happens anymore because, or is necessarily on our radar because he's a graduated prospect. Um, so, you know, in terms of looking at young talent, teams are looking more and more at guys who have already made the majors are still controllable. Uh, you know, you're not going to have them for maybe six years, but maybe you get them for four or five years, and that's equally good to necessarily the number 55 overall prospect in the game who has yet to prove himself at the major league level. Uh, so I'll, I'll be interested to see how some of those other things kind of shake out next week. In terms of major leaguers who could get traded, we're hearing, you know, Paul Goldschmidt might be on the block. Uh, Mitch Haniger, who I mentioned, uh, Corey Kluber, maybe, uh, from the Indians. The Indians need offense help. Uh, can they get it by trading their ace? We'll have to see. Uh, in terms of free agency stuff, that doesn't ref that doesn't necessarily come back to us too much. So if a Bryce Harper were to, to sign with a club in his hometown, not huge news for us unless it's blocking a major prospect, uh, a major outfield prospect. Let's say he signs with the Dodgers or something like that. What does that mean for the future of Alex Verdugo? Then we can have that discussion. Uh, but that we won't know until it happens. Uh, but also next week, the Rule 5 draft will come on Thursday. I will have a preview for that on Tuesday next week uh, from the from the winter meetings in Las Vegas. Uh, look out for that. And you can go back to our stories based on who was protected from the 40 man, uh, who was eligible for the rule five draft this year, who has been left unprotected to kind of put some strings on some, uh, you know, on some boards and try to figure out who might be taken next Thursday. So look out for that. But uh, as always, I, I feel like you don't know what's going to happen in the winter meetings until it actually happens. Uh, I did a piece this week, looking back at the last 10 years and what were the most prospect laden trades. And at, at number one, there was a trade that happened at the winter meetings when Chris Sale essentially changed his socks going from the White Sox to the Red Sox. Included in that deal was Yoan Moncada, who was the number one overall prospect in baseball uh, when the trade happened. If anybody was going to be untouchable, you would have thought it would have been Yoan Moncada. He ends up going from Boston to Chicago. Not something that would have been necessarily on my radar going in.
am I saying expect that the Blue Jays are going to trade Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? Absolutely not. Different class of prospect. I get that. Um, but just be prepared to be surprised. That's all I'm saying uh, in terms of what the deals could happen next week. So very excited to head to Vegas. Uh, lots of news usually comes out of that. Last year was kind of quiet, but two years was certain. Two years ago was certainly not. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll talk again next week and see what deals have happened and what deals may still come. And keep an eye out for the next traded uh, Seattle Mariners uh, player or prospect because guess what? It's you. <laughs> Sam Dykstra is headed to the winter meeting. So is Benjamin Hill. We'll catch up with Ben here in a little while. But coming up next, we're going to head now to the Seattle Mariners organization. Justin Dunn is the third-ranked prospect in the M system, and he joins the show to talk about the trade and his new system next. We are headed to the newly minted third-ranked prospect in the Seattle Mariners organization for this week's conversation on the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. Justin Dunn joins the show. Uh, it has been a whirlwind couple of weeks, I would imagine. Uh, maybe not even a couple of weeks, Justin. What has this last stretch been like for you, going from the Mets to the Mariners and now being a, a guy who's been in the, the baseball spotlight for the last few days? Um, it's been kind of crazy. Uh, I mean, I, the rumor came out actually when I was down in St. Lucie um, with a, at a strength camp. So when I first saw it, I kind of went to the, to the coordinators that happened to be in town, just going over some business. And I was like, what is this? And they're like, you're fine. You're fine. It's just a rumor. And then, uh, come to see a couple of days later that it wasn't a rumor and it was real. Um, I think the, the biggest struggle for me was seeing that, um, it was official everywhere else on, on social media and on TV, but still not hearing from either side until literally like two days ago. Um, so there was a lot of up and downs and holding on to hope that, that I could stay and play at home, but also intrigued at the same time about what could possibly come for me in Seattle. Well, and that's one thing I was going to ask you. I mean, this is one of those deals that goes up until a weekend, and I would think if you're somebody involved in a deal, you're kind of hoping maybe this will get done by Friday. For whatever reason, it seems like, especially over the off season, a deal goes to the weekend, and everybody's like, well, we'll table this until Monday, and it's, so it just hangs out there in purgatory over the weekend. I mean, what yeah, what's sir. the stress like knowing that, you know, like you said, I mean, it's out there. Ken Rosenthal's reporting on it. All these different sources have, have confirmed framework of this deal is done but it can't be made official i mean you're just kind of sitting out there with your future in the balance what was especially saturday and sunday what were those like um yeah i mean there were stressful days my agents did a very good job of keeping me informed and let me know what was going on um so i was very appreciative of that the, the toughest for me was was being a new york kid and having all my three days straight um and also knowing the answer to all of their questions, but I can't say anything to them. Um, that made it a little bit more stressful. So I just wanted it all over with to, uh, to kind of let them know and ease their minds and, and also start the new journey. Yeah. And, and what were those first discussions with Seattle? Like, I mean, like you said, you didn't have anybody reaching out from either side. So who was the first one to tell you uh, it's official. You're now officially a Seattle Mariner. Uh, the first one I heard from him was Mr. DePoto. Um, and it was a great conversation. We uh, talked a little bit about uh, what they saw from me and dating back to even what they saw in the drafts because, to be quite frank, if you would ask me in 2016 where I was going, I was going to go to Seattle with the 11th pick. And um, when that ha didn't happen, I was actually very bummed um, at the time. So we talked about that for a little bit. And then I actually uh, spoke to Paul Davis the other day, the, uh, the pitching coach, and we had another great conversation. And 
love to hear that my philosophy and his philosophy kind of match up on, on the way I view pitching and, and the way he views it. So I'm very excited to get in and, and get to work. Yeah, and piggybacking off of that, then, what is that philosophy that you feel like locks in so well this quickly? Um, I mean, so for me, I, I went back to simplifying things. So in 2017, I kind of had a down year, and I was taking information from so many different people about what it was like to be a starting pitcher and how to be a pitcher, and I kind of got away from who I was, which is being an athlete. So going home um, that offseason, I went back to work and, and got back to understanding the movement of my body and understanding that if I can get my body into what I call checkpoints and, and different positions within my delivery, um, and I was able to repeat those those checkpoints and get into those movements um, efficiently and as easy as possible, then I was going to have some pretty good success. And, and that was kind of what we talked about the other day of um, just understanding the movement of the body and, and understanding the movement and how to move as a pitcher and, and understanding the flow of a delivery. And, and just to go back to another point you made uh, previously there about Seattle wanting you at 11 uh, back in 2016, what were those discussions like? And you even said you thought you were going to go there. Um, so what were you looking forward to? How much did you know about the Mariners system, uh, even in the two years that that have followed since obviously they didn't go with, with you, you eventually go to the Mets. Um, but what did you know about the system either on draft day or you know in the two years since? Uh, yes, I know. I knew they did a very good job of developing prospects, uh, both hitting and pitching wise. Um, I knew it was far away from home, uh, so that was that was something that I looked into. Um, but I also knew that it came down to me and one other player, Tom McNamara, the scouting director at the time, did a great job of informing me that listen, they had one guy ahead of me on the board, and happened to slide there. They were going to have to take him, and I was completely understanding of that. Um, and so following that afterwards, uh, my buddy, my college roommate, actually, Johnny Adams, got picked up by Seattle the following year. And so um, he's been we've been talking a lot lately, but even before the trade about how Seattle does things over there and, and how great of an organization they are. And um, now I'm definitely excited to get in and see firsthand um, what they actually do and, and how it can benefit my career. Justin, you joined an organization that's kind of reshaped itself prospect-wise um, over the last really just few weeks um, with the top three prospects now ranked in that system by MLB Pipeline being guys that have just joined the organization. And oddly enough, guys from New York systems and guys all with first names starting with Jay, but that's probably not the plan. But Justin Sheffield is number one, <laughs> then Jared Kellenick, and then you. So to be going into an organization where it's uh, – I mean, there's kind of a new culture there. And, uh, you know, what the Mariners built and thought – was going to get them to the postseason for the first time since 2001. Didn't work out the last couple of years. So now they're going with this new wave of prospects. And there's a lot of talent that's gone over to that system, even just in the last couple of weeks. What has that been like? Um, I mean, you haven't really gotten a chance to, to jump two feet in yet and be fully involved in the in the organization. But there's got to be a different energy going over to somewhere where, you know, they're obviously focused on the future and what you guys are bringing in as a group. Yeah, I'm really excited to get in and kind of see – what this young wave of players can do. I mean, I, I've seen Jared. So I know what I know what he do, and I know he's a very special talent. And as he develops and matures and and understands um, the game a little bit more as he gets older and comes with the reps, he's going to be somebody really scary to face. And I'm I'm glad I don't have to face him. Um, I've seen Justice throw, and I we uh, we actually played in the same summer organization a year apart. So I've seen him throw a couple times and. In high school, he's been electric since he was a junior in high school, so I'm excited to go out and 
and play with him and, and learn from him. And then you look at Evan White and Kyle Lewis. Those are two guys that I saw in college that I was – little scared to, to face and another two guys I'm very glad I don't have to face anymore so uh, I'm excited to see what we can do and I mean the game's going young so hopefully we can all get up at the same time and, and build some chemistry and do something special and be a part of that rebuild that turns this already pretty prestigious organization around Man, that's, back a, to where it needs to be. that's a pretty great line for Major League Baseball should embrace that as a slogan the game's going young because that is really the case over the last few years of Major League Baseball with how young rosters have turned and um, I was going to ask you about uh, if you had had any crossover with I mean the the Mets and and Mariners don't I don't know if at any level the Mets and Mariners have affiliates in the same league, formerly in the Pacific Coast League, um, with with Las Vegas being there as the Mets affiliate. But now as a as a Mariners prospect, you already had some familiarity with with some of these guys and Kyle Lewis and Evan White. I mean, take me through when you saw them, what your experience was against them in college. Yeah, so I saw I faced Kyle on the Cape. Um, he was in Orleans when I was in Katuit my sophomore summer. I believe Evan, that's where I saw Evan as well. And then, obviously, I mean, me and my friends, we we were kind of baseball nerds, so we would be watching SEC, ACC baseball every weekend. Um, so we saw Evan a lot there when he was at Kentucky. Um, and then also Kyle Emerson, I mean, he had almost as much hype as anyone coming out of the draft. So yeah. he was he was a guy that, that we all looked at, and, and I looked at because that's who I was trying to stack myself up against. So um, I tried to keep up with where they were going and, and look at and, and see how they were doing. Um, to see as close to where I was going to go on draft day as possible. All right, Justin, getting back to uh, kind of you and what your focus is right now. Um, you mentioned before 2017 was kind of a down year for you. It was supposed to be your first full season, spending it entirely at Class A events, St. Lucie, uh, ending the year on the DL, I think. And w- look back to where you were last offseason. It was kind of, you know, you're coming off a first full season compare what you were or where you were with your mindset then to where you are now. Um, it's kind of the same. Um, I kind of went into the last off season of just go back to being you don't, don't worry about trying to impress anybody and trying to do too much because I'm, I'm very much the player that when I put something in my head, sometimes I can have very unrealistic goals and, um, that kind of, plagued me a little bit in 2017 of I thought I was going to get into high A, dominate early, go to double A quick, and, and potentially get up to the show all in one year. That was my goal for myself. And looking back on it now is a very foolish goal and um, was, was pretty uh, pretty tough to achieve. Um, so last offseason, like I said, I, I wanted to get back, get back to work, get healthy first and foremost because the big question surrounding me out of the draft was I was 180 80 pounds, so am I durable enough to, to withstand – 30 starts in a year. Am I, am I durable enough to withstand a hundred plus innings? Cause it's something I had never done. So I understood all those question marks. Um, so my first priority was get my shoulder healthy. Um, and then from there was get into a routine because after my first full season, I understood what it was, what it meant to be a professional and um, having the chance to see some of those big leaguers in that year that the Mets had a lot of injuries um, who came through St. Lucie and watched them work and, the way they prepared themselves day in and day out um, helped me a lot for this season. And it's going to help me a lot for this upcoming season and many seasons to come. Um, so I would say those two things are probably the biggest, biggest mindset things that I am taking into this off season. 
And when it comes to stuff, I know you talked about movement in your delivery and working with that and how much that plugs into Seattle's philosophy as well. Um, but one thing that stood out to me about your 2018 season is how much of a better job you did at, at missing bats. You only struck out 17.3% of batters you faced in, in 2017. That was up about 26% between high A and double A last year. Uh, how do you feel like your stuff jumped this year and how were you able to miss more bats uh, you know, these last couple months? Um, honestly, my, my stuff didn't really change. I just think I was a little bit more effective at the plate this year. And that came from being around the zone more because I was able to control my body. Um, I was a little more effective. I mean, you want to go back and look at, we can go back and look at walk numbers. Also, my, I believe my walk numbers were down drastically from, from 2017, you know? So I was getting guys, I was getting ahead in counts and getting guys into disadvantage counts to where, I had my foot on their throat and, and I had to make them hit my pitch. And when, when I can do that, I usually have a pretty good success. So um, I'll just attribute that one basically to getting ahead in the camp and, and being able to uh, stay in attack mode and challenge guys. Yeah, and, and just to back up what you were saying, the difference between your strikeout and walk rates in 2017 was about 6%. Last year, it was 18%. So you almost tripled it. Um, so just backing up what you were saying there. Uh, and also, speaking about your role, you, you were talked about durability and showing that you can throw a bunch of innings. You're somebody who relieved a lot in, in college, mm-hmm. uh, even relieved a little bit in 2017. Uh, how do you view that you know switching roles a bunch both in your pro and college career um do you feel like that's something beneficial or were you preferred to have been a starter almost from day one uh starting in college i i'm i'm weird um i just love to pitch so you could tell me to go out in the seventh inning the eighth inning the sixth inning down 12 the sixth inning up 12 start the game close the game it doesn't really matter to me as long as i can go out and and step on a mound that's kind of where i'm happy and where I'm at peace. So that's, I just, anytime I can get out there, that that's what I love. I mean, I don't, and winning that, those two things. So in, in college, I would have loved to start, but it was the best move for the team for me to pitch in the back end of the pen. And at the time, my only goal was go to Omaha. So if that's what it meant to go to Omaha, that's what I was going to do. A couple months later, he said, I need you to start. So, Hey, I got to start. Omaha. That's, what, that's all I can do. Um, and, and that's the same thing I take in the pro ball. If I was to get called up tomorrow and he said, hey, I need you in the back of the pen, I'm going to be in the back of the pen and do everything I can to help us win the games. So if they need me to start, I'm going to start as well. I'm fine either way. And how does your kind of a, attack change then based on whether you're starting or relieving? Um, obviously, shorter stints, uh, you can re- reach back a little bit more. Um, but do you change your philosophy to bit based on the role you're go- going into? No, I, I definitely don't change my philosophy. My my philosophy started relieving the same. It, it's it's very much so here to hit it. Uh, I'm going to challenge you best on best, and I think I'm better than you. So no offense, I'm I'm going to come right at you, and that that's my philosophy out of the pen, and it's my philosophy starting. The only thing that really changes is the effort level or the intensity. Um, like you said, coming out of the pen, you got those short stints, so I can I can come at you 100 percent for 20 pitches. But when I'm starting a game, I got to kind of turn it back a little bit, which is why the velo drops a little bit, um, because I have to maintain it, and I have to be able to maintain my stuff for seven to eight innings every time I go out. 
And uh, this is something I always like to ask guys who are moving to a new organization, usually traded. They didn't have much of a say in this. You're going to be introduced to a whole new fan base here, uh, you know, with the Mariners fan base, who obviously is going to take a renewed interest in their farm system in, in one in ways that they haven't probably for years now. Um, you know, what do you hope Mariners fans learn about you, either as a pitcher, as a person, as they in, you know get to know you going into the spring, wearing that cap for the first time, going into you know next year starting at Double A again? Uh, what do you? How do you want to be known uh, up there in the Pacific Northwest? Um, I mean, as a player, I'm a guy that that like I said, I I love to win and I hate to lose. So every time I go out on the field, you you know I'm going to give you everything I have, um, and I'm a I'm a good, I'm a pretty good teammate. So I try to take pride in being a good teammate and always, always being there for my guys. And if they need me for anything, I'm always there for them. Um, and I'm excited to get out there and, and see Seattle as a city I've never been to and heard so many great things about. So I can't wait to get out there and, and walk around and see what it's like to live in Seattle and, and hopefully call it home for a, couple, a long time. All right, Justin, a couple more for you before we get you out of here. Um, I noticed on Twitter, and Justin's on Twitter, by the way, at Dunn underscore Deal 19, um, you've already got a sweet Mariners picture up there, and I've always wondered that with dudes who got traded. Is that a Photoshop job? Did you happen to have, like, a Mariners jersey and hat laying around somewhere that you got somebody to take a picture of you? How'd the Twitter picture change? Mm, no, very much so a Photoshop job. Uh, <laughs> somebody did a good I, job with that. Yeah. Yeah, so I, as soon as I found out that it was official, I texted my agent because I knew I was going to write a little letter to Met fans and, and to Mariners fans as well, and I thought it would be a pretty cool idea if I could have a picture in a Mariners uniform and say I'm excited to hopefully be able to wear this uniform and, and call it my uh, my uniform for work every day. Um, so I texted him, and I was like, I need somebody that's, if I need somebody to edit this if possible. I said, yep, on it, and they, they did a really good job with it. I was not expecting it to be that good. That's fantastic. Most and Sometimes you'll see – well, I think the most famous one is Brandon McCarthy when he got traded to the Dodgers a few years ago, and somebody just edited an MS Paint and, like, drew an L.A. on the front of a blue cap that they <laughs> colored in. You know, you could have gone that route as well. That's- All right, man, final thing for you. Um, you are a Boston College alumnus. My co-host Sam Dykstra is a Boston University alumnus, and this past weekend, matchup number one of the Beanpot, BC 4-1 to on Friday and a 0-0 tie on Saturday. The floor is yours to talk some trash to Sam over the fact that you got the first win. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there's not much trash to talk. Is the numbers speak for themselves. We have the best in, in hockey, and uh, we produce some pretty good NHL players, so. Um, I'll let I'll let the boys do the talking for themselves. There you go. There Sam. you go. Well, I'll, I'll I'll pivot it to this for BC stuff. Uh, everybody who I know who's gone to BC always has a favorite for this. But what is what was your go to order at Eagles Deli back in the day? Oh, I got the brunch burger every time. Uh, okay, see there you go. See, I can I can we can BC and BU folk we can come together we can agree on things. Yeah. Eagles Deli is very <laughs> good. I wish we had something so I wish very we had good. a Terrier's Deli. It, uh, it's one of the go-to spots I take people whenever they go to Boston. Hey, there you go. Good stuff. Justin Dunn, he's on Twitter at Dunn underscore Deal 19. And Mariners fans, you got a good one headed your way for 2019 and beyond. Justin, we can't thank you enough for the time, man. Congrats on uh, on the new move and uh, best of luck in uh, wherever you find yourself, Tacoma or Seattle in, uh, in 2019, man. We'll be watching. Awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
Benjamin Hill joins the show. The uh, the Ben's features on uh, Ben Everywhere. Ben's Best. That's the title that I was looking for. The Ben's Best features continued on the site, and there's a really good one up this past week and another good one coming. Hello, Ben. Hello, Tyler, and hello, Sam, sitting to my left. And uh, a brief note about our surroundings today. We're in conference room 5S, and there's a video screen projecting us as we're filming the podcast. Oh, it's very surreal. Inception. Yeah, it's very weird. And a weird thing about it is the video screen is like a half second delay of real time. So you can look at yourself as if it's a mirror, but you're doing things delayed in this video screen mirror. It's weird. it's very surreal. But we're going to power through this and we're going to remember it forever. I'm definitely not going to be looking over that way because it just makes me very self-conscious about <laughs> be really how I look during that. this audio podcast. Yeah, I just can't keep my eyes off myself. <laughs> He really can't. He's been staring at it the whole time. <laughs> um, well, Ben, the uh, the latest best of feature uh, from Ben's Best is the uh, – I think this one is, is a really cool idea. And I know that you had one title for it. You ended up going with Ballpark Features because um, some of these are kind of – quirks from a, a ballpark standpoint some of them are um you know like constructed features as in frisco which was your double a honoree this is a really cool um run through six levels of minor league baseball and what you like as the best ballpark features across the minor leagues take us through these yeah you know this uh, series this is the uh, i believe the sixth in the series you know, started with overall best ballparks. I did a best ballpark view one, and this final ballpark-related best of feature is uh, features. Um, yeah, I struggled with it at first. I was going to go with quirks, but then quirks, you know, to me spoke to things like it could be its own different article, like the netting uh, at Hartford's Dunkin' Donuts Park um, in the outfield. Uh, so if a ball hits the netting on the lower level, you know, it's a double and just not a home run or the foul pole in Biloxi uh, that was constructed on the outside of the fence as opposed to behind it. So it's padded and in play, et cetera, et cetera. I did not do quirks. Instead, I decided to choose things. Yes, they're quirky, uh, but that are very site specific things at ballparks over the country that just create a memorable experience. Uh, so for that you know, I went with the Albuquerque isotopes and the, how they have the uh, Simpson statues all over the concourse, the Simpson family. And, of course, the Albuquerque isotopes name is a Simpsons reference. And, and the whole story of how they got these statues is interesting. And in the article, you can click on a link to, to read about it. But uh, General Manager John Traub was on vacation with his family in L.A., came across a kitschy uh, retro furniture stop and uh, shop and junk emporium, saw the Simpsons statues negotiated to buy them rented the biggest truck he could find to drive them to albuquerque from la and if i remember so, right they weren't even on sale and he was like i don't care we have to have these correct they, they were not technically on sale and it was kind of one of those like well i had the feeling at a place like this everything is for sale so there was a lot of negotiation <laughs> and then they took them to a, a shop in uh, albuquerque where they got refurbished so the whole thing was a, a big a you know, a big production and uh, done creatively, and it's just a cool Simpsons tie-in at a ballpark whose name is, you know, at least partially a Simpsons reference. Um, you know, Double A. How could I not? Frisco Rough Riders, Lazy River, uh, one of the most unique ballpark features in all of minor league baseball. Certainly, the most unique group area. It is a figure eight shaped Lazy River in the outfield uh, that is really impressive and a really obviously a memorable place to see a game uh you know i feel like i've been writing about daytona a lot jackie robinson ballpark uh, one that i really love but in class a advance i went with the jackie robinson ballpark and museum you know on the grounds of uh jackie robinson ballpark which was named in honor of jackie robinson because he spent 1946 spring training there um you know marking his first games with the uh, brooklyn dodgers and that's a, a whole interesting 
story, 1946 spring training. But at the ballpark today in Daytona, home of the Tortugas. So much easier when it was the Daytona Cubs. It really was. Uh, they have a museum of sorts. They call it a museum, uh, but it has like interactive displays, you know, showing uh, Jackie Robinson's uh, track and field feats. Uh, there's a you know sand pit where you can measure your long jump against Jackie's. There's all sorts of plaques and information and photos related to his time in Daytona, and uh, just a cool bit of history right there on the uh, waterfront at Jackie Robinson Ballpark. Class A went with the South Bend Cubs. Um, who a few years ago, when they're still the Silverhawks, um, there was a, an abandoned synagogue beyond the outfield that they incorporated into the ballpark proper. Uh, and this was a desanctified synagogue, so no longer a holy place. The team spent a lot of money to uh, refurbish it and turned it into a team store. So it's a team store in a synagogue with a you know grandiose chandelier hand, uh, hanging down and certainly the most memorable uh, team store in minor league baseball uh, there in South Bend. In Class A, short season, went with the um, Spokane Indians and how they have signs all over the ballpark in Salish script, which is the language of the Spokane tribe uh, for whom the baseball team is named. And that's part of a larger um, collaboration between the, the team and the Spokane tribe, uh, which is a pretty remarkable thing. And it kind of shows the way forward when you're dealing with teams that have Native American identities and how to uh, you know brand uh, respectfully around that. And finally, rookie ball. I went with the Missoula Osprey, who have just beyond the outfield and uh, right right center a literal Osprey nest. So the Missoula Osprey are the only team in minor league baseball, maybe the whole country, that the team name, they have an actual animal of that team that, that represents the team name living in its natural habitat at the ballpark. I'm sure I could have uh, said that more succinctly, but you get my drift. There are actual Ospreys living at um, the Missoula Ospreys ballpark. And there you go. Some unique ballpark features. Check it out. And, of course, uh, on Twitter or email me, uh, Ben's Biz. That's Twitter, not my email. But regardless, uh, get in touch. Let me know what you like. And um, it's been fun to write these. And I've been saying before, uh, it's been providing me with a lot of off-season content at a time when there's not always much to write about outside of, of course, the rebrandings, which we seem to talk about every week. Right. And this is a list I feel like that could constantly be updated, you know, in the years to come just because, you know, so many quirks features get added to ballparks nowadays. Like Frisco, they just put in that what two years ago. Yeah, that was I think during the 2016 season that opened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So they that's only been there for three years. So this could constantly be updating. That's kind of one of the fun things about that. Another list that you have coming out that could also be constantly updating in the years to come. Uh, this will be published the same day this podcast comes out. Uh, your best of logos across the uh, the different levels here what do you kind of how do you kind of see that rolling out yeah well you know this whole best of series has been up until now all based on things that were specific to my travels this is the one that i think will be get the most reaction one because people like to talk about logos and two it's something that everyone can have a legit opinion on even if you've never been to a minor league ballpark in your life so it's a more inclusive that way so i decided to wrap up this whole series with logos best logos and uh yeah because uh next week will be the winter meetings and we'll probably moved on to other things right i'll just briefly say what i chose and then you can of course tell me why i'm wrong because the chances that i'm wrong are far more likely than the chances i'm right according to you whoever you may be who hold a superior opinion to me uh so i've chose uh, in triple a the memphis redbirds just like that that's a classic uh, it's a new newish logo but the classic look neon signage it speaks of the beale street nightlife studio simon creation uh double a chattanooga look, lookouts uh they've been using that logo for something about 25 years now but the uh you know the, the the cartoonish eyes within the sea. You know the it's eyes. Basically, literally. an emoji now too. 
Yeah, it, it really is. But the emoji is caught up to the lookouts. The lookouts have yeah, exactly, the exactly. The emoji, I think, somebody in wherever they invented those saw a lookouts logo like twenty years ago and was like, someday I'm going to do something with that. Yeah, so I, I always like that one. Uh, the the eyes in there, yeah, inspired an emoji. You know, the team is named for the nearby Lookout Mountain, uh, but as opposed to a mountain in the primary logo, uh, it's eyes in the sea. Speaking of eyes. I went with the Lake Elsinore Storm in Class A Advanced, you know, truly iconic. You know, I live in New York City and I see people walking around in Lake Elsinore Storm hats, you know, not all the time, but, you know, fairly regularly. Right. And not because it's they're thinking, oh, I'm a Lake Elsinore Storm fan, but just those eyes, those glowering, menacing eyes uh, has become truly iconic um, just in the world of uh, not just minor league baseball, but just in terms of sports branding overall. And then the story with that logo is, you know, the team's called the Storm. So the original logo in the mid 1990s had those eyes within a storm cloud. And eventually Dave Oster, then the GM team president, just was like, I like these eyes and had the idea to just remove the the cloud and storm and weather elements from the logo and just kept the eyes. And now that team is uh, defined by its uh, by its eyes. <laughs> One thing we should point out before we get deeper into your list here, this is just primary logos we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, just went with logo primary. Set. This isn't like alternates and including everything. It's literally just the the logo that each team mainly uses. Yes. Yeah, because, you know, otherwise it they, just – You could fall down a rabbit hole that – Yeah, as we all know, working in minor league baseball, rabbit holes are easier to come by in this particular world than probably anywhere else in sports. So right. uh, it, it's good to minimize the uh, chance of falling into one. Uh, Class A went to the South Atlantic League, the Columbia Fireflies. You know, they, they debuted just a couple years ago as a team. And I just kind of liked how sleek and kind of minimalistic the logo was with the glow-in-the-dark colors and literal glow-in-the-dark elements to some of the uniforms. Um, you know, the Firefly isn't making a crazy face or glaring or carrying a bat. He's just or she, very very much a gender neutral flat firefly. Mm. Um, it's just simple, sleek, and uh, you know a unique color scheme. You know, highlighted by that fluorescent green. Uh, Class A short season, the Spokane Indians. I mentioned them earlier, obviously, with the Salish script uh, at the ballpark signage, and they incorporate that into uh, not their primary logo, but some of their logos, but the main logo as well. Um, you know, was created in collaboration with the tribe and Spokane Indians, classic team, classic name, a classic look, but one that's been updated, you know, for the 21st century, which I just think is a uh, classic. And then finally, rookie ball, you know, rookie ball, especially in the Appy League, you got mostly teams that are just named after the parent club, you know, shout out to that Greenville Reds logo, which I thought was pretty cool where the Cincinnati C is kind of turned into a, you know, incorporated, reincorporated into a, into a Greenville G type of look. But I went with the Rocky Mountain vibes just because maybe just because it's new, but, you know, it's it's it speaks to a new direction for rookie ball that none of these teams have really gone in this route uh, before. The Casper Ghosts kind of did RIP uh, with their glow-in-the-dark logos, but uh, the Rocky Mountain vibes, you know, Brandio's creation, uh, definitely a little ridiculous and absurd, and we talked, Sam, last week about the anthropomorphic marshmallow and whether or not... Uh, where does... Where does what's the name again? Toasty. Toasty vibes. Where does Toasty begin and where does Toasty end? We're still not sure. Right. Is he a s'more? Is his whole body a s'more? Or is he a marshmallow with uh, accessories that make him into a s'more? S'more. But when he goes home, he can take off those accessories and just be a marshmallow. On fire. On fire. <laughs> He's always on fire. He's always on. Yeah. Fire. But the primary logo is a speaking of fire, you know, vibes spelled out in flames on a camping stick or a stick, um, a campfire stick. 
uh, along the lines of what you might roast a marshmallow with, Toasty himself even, if you're into eating Toasty vibes. And that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the ghosts because I will I will forever hold the ghosts up as my favorite. But I think this is probably going to be your most hotly debated one because not everybody can look at you know ballpark features. They haven't been to every ballpark, whatever. But everybody can evaluate all of the logos, and that fires people up. Or this is going to be uh, there's going to be a lot of discussion about this one. I'm excited. I would definitely expect that. And Tyler, you um, more than most people are a. Uh, a logo I'm a weirdo. aficionado weirdo i mean in terms of me just going through my own opinions which are you know neither right nor wrong at the end of the day just my opinions were there any that spoke to you is like oh definitely i agree with that or like Ugh, what do you what is this dude talking about no i certainly i like your list um i uh chattanooga i don't think is one that i would have uh, at the at its face that i would have picked out but the more I think about it, like, that is such a good logo. That's such a classic logo. Chattanooga is one of those logos that I remember, even from when I was a little kid, I remember seeing that logo and instantly being able to identify it as a minor league baseball logo. Um, and there are, like, very few of those that are still around from when I was a kid. But Lansing was that way. Um, you know, the Lugnuts came around. They were kind of one of those first in the new wave of crazy names. We know minor league baseball has crazy names going back for a century or more. Um, but, yeah, Chattanooga is a good one. I don't know if I would have just initially grabbed that at the AA level, but that's a really good one. I'll have to go through and uh and kind of try to lay out i get this question sometimes from people who you know know of my hat collection and uh know that i work in minor league baseball and say what's your what's your favorite logo and i don't really outside of me just being a minor league baseball hipster was like casper ghosts man they were the coolest 10 years ago um i, I never have a, a prepped answer for that so i should go through and uh and try to figure out what my own list would be yeah, Casper Ghosts are like that cool band that had a little buzz and then yeah. broke up before yeah. they be, could hit the mainstream, but people still talk about them. You know, you had to have been there, man. Yeah, you had to be there. Had to be there for the Ghost chapter, man. Um, but it's a this is a good feature, and it's going to be up on the site. Uh, when you check out the podcast, you can uh, read at MILB.com, the Ben's Best Features. Um, and we are closing in on the winter meetings as well. I initially read in Sam's email uh, under the, uh, the Ben segment, what he expects out of WM and I thought well what is West Michigan doing and then I realized <laughs> no it's the winter meetings which are coming up in Las Vegas um, this is this has the feeling especially after last year's weird offseason of Major League Baseball this has the feeling that it's going to be a huge winter meetings that kind of doesn't matter from the minor league baseball landscape it's always big from minor league baseball's standpoint um, what are you looking at going into the winter meetings this year being in Vegas should be an interesting uh, change of scenery yeah you know Vegas uh, this will be somehow, I believe, my 12th winter meetings. Um, and Vegas was the second one I ever went to in 2008. Um, you know, I wasn't even full time then. I kind of went with a coworker, crashed. You know, I was there unofficially. But what I remember from back then was uh, just how much walking was involved because a lot of the minor league hotel and the major league hotel were on different sides of the strip and uh it was a mess and of course you know minor league baseball the baseball industry is one that likes to have a good time and i'm sure vegas will be a storyline throughout just in terms of the experiences people are having um but you know one thing you've probably heard us say this on the podcast before but i think it bears repeating on the cusp of the winter meetings is that you know if you're a baseball fan you'll see on mlb network espn etc etc you know, tons of winter meetings coverage, but it's important to remember that this is a minor league baseball event, literally booked and organized yeah. uh, by minor league baseball. Major league baseball is essentially a guest at this minor league event. Um, and so most of the people there have nothing to do with the high profile, you know, free agents and trades and wheeling and dealing. That is a 
you know, less than 1% of the activity that's happening that's get, getting 99% of the attention. So it's just a funny dynamic with the winter meetings that I think it bears in mind. Uh, you know, if you're just a baseball fan, uh, you know, enjoy the winter meetings for what they are as a fan and, and all the moves that might happen. But I think it's cool to keep in mind that there are hundreds of job seekers there, and I'll be trying to cover that in some capacity. There's, of course, the trade show. There's all these business seminars. There's people meeting in every configuration of different leagues and jobs and everything else. So if you can think about something related to the world of baseball, an element of that is happening at the winter meetings outside of actually playing baseball. It's making so. me think we should come up with like a winter meetings meeting generator. The Pacific Coast League, third base umpire yeah. meeting, yeah, <laughs> conference room B at 7:30. Yeah, and it is amazing when you look at the full agenda day to day and just all the meetings listed. It's just, it just mind-boggling the amount of discussions and things that are happening. So I'm still kind of putting together a, a, a plan for my you know material. It's always weird for me because I'm one of the very few media members who's not really waiting for a story to break. And most of the stuff that I'm covering isn't really newsworthy per se, but I do feel I can do things that just, as I do every year, that just shine a light on what the event actually is. Sam, I imagine your experience is quite a bit different, more geared towards things that are going to be occurring that you can't necessarily prepare for. You just try to be ready when they when they happen. Right. That that's a big thing of it for me. For things is you know you try there. Everybody's in the the same place basically. So. If things are quiet, you go out and search stories and people are easier to find because you just say, I'm on floor three, where are you? Um, instead of trying to hunt them down over the phone, uh, that's nice. But in terms of most of what I'm going to be doing next week is in terms of trades happening and then reaction to trades and having general managers be right there for press conferences afterwards, stuff like that. Uh, the Rule 5 draft, obviously, and we'll have previews of, of things in that nature. But uh, I am a little bit jealous of what you get to do in terms of having a little bit more run of the place uh, than than I will, which is mostly sitting around waiting for news and trying to go out and bring you guys podcast guests for the weeks to come and, and things of that nature. We both play a very important role. Yes, so. we do. No, we, we that's the one thing I like about mill.com is that you get a taste of both. Absolutely. I think that's going to be our new site motto. A taste of both. <laughs> <M-I-L-B>. <laughs> a taste of both. <laughs> Um, ben, there is one big uh, story that's coming out of the winter meetings this weekend. We already have an idea of what this announcement is going to be because there were some trademark filings. And there was a big story that somebody did uh, a while back on what this probably will be. But the Las Vegas AAA team is moving into a new ballpark called Las Vegas Ballpark. Um, in 2019, there will be a, a new affiliation there with the Oakland Athletics. Um, but they will unveil their new identity on Saturday. This is a pretty cool event to be able to have in your backyard to use as your soapbox to unveil your new identity. But what are you expecting from that? Yeah, um, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, uh, the name is not, uh, you know, public knowledge, but there's definitely been a lot of uh, speculation bandied about. That'll be announced on Saturday. And so that's a just a, a good – it's going to be a very Las Vegas baseball uh, couple of days. They, they announced the new team name on Saturday, and the winter meetings officially start on Sunday. So um, – you know, the name unveil is not technically a winter meetings event, but it is definitely going to roll right into the winter meetings proper. And obviously there's going to be that tie in when they announce it. Here's our team name and then keep the eyes of the baseball world on Vegas, obviously, throughout the entirety of the week through Thursday uh, for the winter meetings. And that will, um, you know, we always get surprised every year, but that'll be the last new. I think we might have some rebrandings down the line, but no more or new logos. But no, this will be the last 
team name. Team name, yeah, that it's coming down the pike. And uh, that's Las Vegas on Saturday as they prepare for a uh, very different 2019 at a new ballpark. And that ballpark is not technically in Vegas. It's in Summerlin, um, which is a planned community on land originally bought by Howard Hughes. And it's uh, no uh, coincidence that that the team is now – the Las Vegas baseball team is now owned by – uh, the Howard Hughes Corporation, basically now playing uh, on Howard Hughes land. So it's the wave of the future, wave of the future. The Howard wave. Hughes is wave the wave of the future. Of the future. Yes, wave of the future. Um, ben, before we let you go, uh, just one quick question for you. You are um, not on our pre-show emails, and so I want to ask you this. I did not notice it when I first glanced at it from Sam, but now I, I noticed it, and I want to just bounce it off of you. If I were to say that a, a criminal was suspected of committing a one eight seven, would you know what that is? Uh, I would, yes. Okay, well, and it would be? I mean, I'm just going based on like a middle school and high school knowledge of gangster right. rap lyrics, but I would say it's a, you know, what we were led to believe, I don't know how exactly accurate it is, that would be a, a, a murder. A murder, a murder, yeah. yeah. Um, poor sweet Sam. Sam oh, said no. uh, 187 stands for murder under the California Penal Code. Who knew? I thought everybody knew. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, you, you didn't know this was going to be like, oh, Tyler, no, I taught Tyler something. <laughs> I had no idea. You didn't listen to much uh, Dre and Snoop? I mean, the the title Sweet of this email Sam. is a Dr. Dre lyric. Yeah. It is. It is. That's true. Um, but I just, you know, I had to bounce it off of him because uh, I thought it was but it was common, uh, common Dre-induced knowledge. Like yeah, that. I don't think Sam listened to much hip hop growing up. He listened to more like, uh, like Gaelic folk songs. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I grew up on. Yeah. Benjamin Hill's on Twitter. He's at Ben's Biz. You can check out the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. And uh, if you're going to be in Vegas, find Ben and say hello. And uh, Ben, enjoy it, man. Thanks. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, this thus concludes this segment in which uh, we got to watch ourselves speak the whole time. <laughs> bye, Tyler. Bye, Sam. And bye to me and Sam on the screen. <laughs> oh, man. I was literally Sorry. waving the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> This will be available later on YouTube for anybody who wants the video component. Final segment of this week's show. Sam, what are you watching on MILB TV this week? (laughs) If only only that was still a thing. I know, yeah. It's currently December 5th. And we're still in that mode of like, oh, yeah, this is how this oh, yeah, the machinations the of this podcast work. There's right. one thing I want to correct here for the record at the bottom of the podcast, because I'm sure there were thousands upon thousands of you shouting at your recording devices or listening devices uh, when this happened. Tyler said that the Bean Pot started this weekend. It was part of the Bean Pot series. That is incorrect. Bean Pot is not a like ongoing series during the regular season it happens in winter it is held at the td garden it's its own special thing it happens on the mondays the garden the, the td garden uh between boston college justin dunn's alma mater boston university my alma mater uh harvard and northeastern that won't Conan happen O'Brien's until then maybe we'll bring justin Adam dunn Adavino's on alma mater just what? throw in I said Conan O'Brien's alma mater and Adam Adovino's alma mater. Just See, there you go. Yeah, there, there's people you know that came from all these schools. Uh, although Harvard kids never go to the Beanpot, and I don't understand why. Probably because their school isn't very good at hockey. Um, busy but busy to rule the world. Yeah, well, yeah, they have better other they have other better things to do. Meanwhile, BU, we don't. I will say that we don't have a football team. We don't have a baseball team. Our basketball team is 
okay. We're happy if we make the tournament, uh, but we love our hockey team, so we show up in droves. Um, but just wanted to correct that at the bottom. Okay. Uh, th- thankfully, in, in my defense. Yes, go ahead. Um, as the the television play-by-play voice of the eight-time national champion Denver Pioneers, um, we worry more about winning the best conference in college hockey, the NCHC, rather than paying attention to anything having to do with Boston hockey. Well, that's incorrect. Hockey East is traditionally the best <laughs> conference in hockey. Last and three th- national champs came from the NCHC, Sam. Yeah, the but time. yeah, but just count the banners all time, and then we'll you can. I will. How, how many bean pots has Denver won, Tyler? Have, how many bean pots has Denver won? We have eight national championships, which are, um, as I understand it, a larger context, I think, than four schools in Boston. Eight national championships no. tied for the second most all time. No, 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 no. Not Hub with Boston University or Boston College, I will say. Yeah. Uh, Hub of the universe. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh man there were so many different avenues of jokes i wanted to make and i <laughs> settle on one and one of them involved northwestern and it just in my brain goes a, b- a bunch of weird different places um but uh yeah no i really i honestly thought that it was like the regular season series led up to the beanpot tournament and i thought that was just the culmination of the regular season matchups but that no. is not the case no they uh I'm being told. so harvard is it, my it, sources it's... say yeah, yeah, your source. I am your source. Uh, follow the money. Um, no, that Harvard is in its own conference. Uh, so BU, BC, and Northeastern, they're in hockey East. They don't necessarily have to play Harvard during the regular season. That would be an out-of-conference game. That said, they do. the three of those teams do play each other in conference play. The Beanpot does not count as conference play. So when BU plays BC, that's oh, not a technical Hockey East game. That's an out-of-conference game. Which is hilarious, um, and it's always funny to yeah, it's always funny to look at like the attendance numbers for the season, and they'll have like how many fans you're averaging for your home games, how many fans you're averaging for your away games, and how many fans you're averaging for neutral sites. And those four schools just usually run away with it because they'll have games at sometimes there'll be games at Fenway, or sometimes you know they have those games at TD Garden in which eighteen thousand folks show up, and you're just not going to get that. Uh, at most other, you know, college hockey tournaments. So, uh, yeah, it's one of the best things, one of the best parts of my college experience. Love the bean pot to death, but I realize it's a very niche topic. Um, yeah, we alienated a whole bunch of our <laughs> like, what hockey? What? I thought what this was this a minor league. Turned to a hockey yeah. podcast. What is going on here? You guys are already um, niche. You're minor league baseball. Now you're talking about college hockey. What is this? <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, yeah, so if you want us to keep you updated on all things college hockey, be sure to tune in to this minor league baseball podcast uh, for the remainder of the offseason as we get more and more bored. Um, no, in all seriousness, if you want to watch baseball over the offseason, by the way, you can find streams. The Mexican Pacific Winter League streams its games. The Australian Baseball League streams uh, now select games. They used to stream every game. They now have a national TV deal, so they don't stream every game now, but there are a lot of games that are streamed uh, through the ABL. I believe you can still find uh, Venezuelan Winter Winter League streams, um, Dominican Winter League as well, Puerto Rican Winter League. I don't think I've ever found streams from the Puerto Rican Winter League, but it's 2018. I'm sure they're out there. So if somebody knows of them, you can tweet at us. Um, But, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, you know, if we get links and stuff, we can pass them along. If you're that starved for baseball, and believe me, so many of us are, um, there are certainly ways to find baseball and good baseball to watch uh, as the offseason rolls along. And if you're not into watching games – 
you can watch MLB Network coming up over the next week and uh, and satiate yourself with a whole bunch of people walking around in a convention center and a bunch of 22-year-old dorks in suits like I was trying to find jobs. And, uh, it's, you know, it's a meat market out there for, for, uh, for the job seekers. And uh, it's the winter meetings are an interesting experience. Even if you are not somebody looking for a job or you don't work in baseball or something, if you're in an area – you live near Vegas or you're in Los Angeles and you can drive to Vegas and you got the weekend or you got a couple of days off, go to the winter meetings and just walk around because it is one of the most fascinating atmospheres that you'll ever find yourself in. You'll walk around a corner and just run into Tommy Lasorda or there's Clint Hurdle having a burger or just like, it's so weird. The winter meetings are such a surreal experience. Yeah, no, they really are. you've done it a bunch now. Well, this is going to be my third, so I feel like I'm finally in lockstep. I'm not where Ben is. Ben, like you said, has done this for a dozen years now, uh, knows exactly how it works. Uh, this is only be my third, but I think I have my bearings under me now. It took a while, I will yeah, say, at National Harbor two years ago. Um, but one of my favorite experiences of that was that was right after the Yankees announced that they had hired Aaron Boone uh, to be the manager for the, you know, was that? No, that wasn't two years ago. I think that was last year. That must have been last year. Yeah, last um, year. yeah, it was last year. Aaron Boone was the first year manager this year. Uh, and coming out of the elevator was Aaron Boone while I was in the lobby. And going into the elevator was Terry Francona, who looked so happy to see Aaron Boone and was just like, Booney, congratulations, man. Always believed in you. And they gave each other a big huh. hug. And they were so, and I was sitting there and was like, did 2003 not happen? What, ha- what, <laughs> like, the guy hit the most notorious middle school Sam was so betrayed by this well I know but I didn't realize Terry Francona was not the manager of 2003 Red Sox when that happened still true he was you know maybe he thanked him for the job you know Aaron Boone hit the home run Grady Little gets fired Terry I don't know it just felt weird like this guy who hit one of the most famous home runs in Yankee history meeting maybe the most famous Red Sox manager in history and then just embracing in that way Uh, but you know Tito manages the Cleveland Indians now. They're not in the same division. Maybe it's a little easier to embrace. But those are the types of things you see, just guys bumping into each other, uh, all sorts. And, yeah, if you ever get a chance to experience it, I highly recommend it. And if you are there, if you're a job seeker or if you're there in some other capacity, uh, working for a mill club already maybe, uh, and you see me or Ben, say hi say you listen to the show uh we love to talk to you guys and and give us your uh, college hockey takes yeah give us your college hockey takes who's who's gonna take it this year at the frozen four uh but in all seriousness yeah it's a, it's a great chance to meet up so ben and i will be there and we're looking forward to seeing plenty of you out in vegas that's next week we'll be back with you for next week's episode 188 of the show before the show podcast he's sam dykstra i'm tyler mom we'll talk to you then. 